Well, this morning we are in our last week, our last week of our series on the Minor Prophets. We've made it. Give yourself a hand. You made it all the way through. You made it all the way through. Twelve messages on the Minor Prophets. And uh, this morning we're on the last one, Malachi. Now, uh, Malachi's name means messenger, messenger. And he was, now they didn't know this at the time, but he was the last messenger that God was going to use for 400 years. After Malachi chapter 4, God doesn't speak again to his people for 400 years. And the next time that God sends a messenger to his people, it's an angel named Gabriel who shows up in a temple to talk to a priest named Zechariah to say, you're going to have a son and his name is going to be John. John the Baptist, and then, Zach, and then the same angel Gabriel shows up not long after to a young woman named Mary to say, you've been chosen uh, to bring into this earth the very son of God. So with Malachi, we have God's last words to his people for 400 years. Now, the last couple of weeks, we've talked about how the people from Judah who were dragged into exile by Babylon we're back home now. They're back. Remember with Haggai, we talked about, and Zechariah, how they were supposed to be rebuilding the temple, and they weren't rebuilding the temple. Well, this is about 80 years after Haggai and Zechariah, and they've rebuilt the temple. So the temple is built, worship has been restored, and you think things must be good again, but they're not. And what we learn in Malachi is that the, it, the Jewish people's time in exile hadn't changed their hearts. They had been dragged off into exile. They had been brought back by God. But nothing actually had changed in their hearts. And what we learn in Malachi, here's, a, here's sort of a list of things that we learn about the Jewish people. They were skeptical of God's love. They were careless in their worship. They were indifferent to the truth and disobedient to the covenant. They were faithless in their marriages. They were divorcing. They were stingy in their offerings. This is where they're at. And Malachi is interesting. It's presented to us as a series of disputes. How many of you like debates? Anybody, you like, anybody like listening to debates? Maybe the Democratic debates that have been on TV recently, maybe the ones that are coming up next year, God help us. But the debates, right? Anybody, anybody like debating? You would say, I like being in a good argument. Anyone? Yeah, so, so some people really enjoy that. If you enjoy that, you're going to really like Malachi. And if you don't enjoy it, sorry, you're here this morning. You're going you're gonna to hear it anyway. But uh, Malachi is a series of disputes between God and his people. There's about eight of them. And basically, this is what they sound like. God says, you did this. And the people say back to God, what are you saying we did this? We didn't do this. How can you say that's true? And, or some of the times, it's actually the people of Israel who are starting it, saying, God, this is true of you, and God's saying, how can you say that is true of me? And so we have this back and forth throughout the book of Malachi. And we're gonna look this morning just at the first two disputes, and what we're gonna see in the first two disputes is that God is revealing to his people that in their hearts there is a cause and an effect. You're familiar with that concept, right? Cause and effect. If you're a parent, it feels like most of your conversations with your children are explaining causes and effects, right? If you touch that stove, that's the cause, hot stove, what's gonna happen? What's the effect? You're gonna burn your hand, right? If you don't eat your vegetables, you're not going to be healthy. If you don't brush your teeth, you're gonna have a disgusting mouth, right? So sort of, and even as we get older, we understand cause and effects. If we don't exercise and we don't eat well, then we don't, we, we get unhealthy, right? If we don't work hard, if we don't have integrity at our job, then things probably aren't gonna go very well there for us. Cause and effect. And even when we parent our girls, like one of the things, we, we have three little girls, 11, eight, and five. One of the things we try to do is that when they've done something that they're gonna get punished for, I, we try to call it to, we try to call it a consequence. That's a term we try to use because we want them to understand that this is a consequence of your actions, cause and effect. 
So yesterday, I know none of you can imagine our five-year-old Maddie being anything but sweet and lovely and smiley, but she's got another side to her, just like all kids do. And, and yesterday, she had a consequence. Because of how she handled herself in the morning, she couldn't use the iPad for the day. That's a pretty bad consequence for, for a little kid like Maddie. But we're teaching her, when there's a cause, your behavior there's an effect, a result. And so that's what we're gonna see this morning, a cause, an effect. Let's look at uh, the very beginning of this book, uh, Malachi chapter one, verses one. Uh, we're gonna read first verses one through five. I'm reading to you from the ESV, and it says this. It says, the oracle of the word of the Lord. The word or- oracle there can also mean the, a burden. This is a burden on the heart of God to share with his people. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. That's his first thing. Think about this. To rebellious, sinful, unfaithful people, the first thing God says to them is, I have loved you. Here's the dispute. They say back to him, but you say, how have you loved us? So God's saying, I've loved you, and they're saying, prove it to us. How have you loved us? And now God speaks again. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? If you're not familiar with that story, we're gonna talk about it in a minute. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom, Edom is the descendants of Esau, if Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel." So what's the cause in this story, or in this first chapter? The cause is simply a forgetful heart. They have a forgetful heart. God's first message is, I love you. And Israel's reply is, how? How have you loved us? It's just like, what have you done for me recently, right? What have you done for me lately? And this is what Israel's saying is, you're saying you love us, but, but life's not great, and and Jerusalem's not what it used to be, and we're still under the reign of Persia, and this, that, and the other, and they're saying, God, they're questioning God's love based on what they can see with their own eyes, and, and when we forget God's love for us, here's what we do. When we forget God's love, listen, we define his goodness based on our, one of two things, our power of observation or our powers of interpretation. When we forget God's love for us, we begin to define his goodness and determine whether or not God is truly good based on, and we overestimate our ability to observe things and our over ability, we overestimate our ability to interpret things, which by the way, we're always doing, right? We're always observing things and we're always interpreting things. We're always seeing things and we're always adding meaning to things. We can't stop doing it. If you and I see the exact same car accident, we observe things, we're gonna have different, we're gonna walk away with different interpretations because we're different people. And when we over-rely on our ability to observe what's happening in our lives and, more importantly, to interpret what's happening in our lives, we forget God's love for us. So when things aren't going great, how do we interpret it? Sometimes we interpret it as, well, God has forgotten me. God doesn't care about me. I guess I haven't been good enough to earn God's blessings. See, it's the power of interpretation that trumps sometimes God's love for us. We say, this is what I see, and this is what it must mean. And by the way, we tend to be very overconfident in our ability to interpret, don't we? We're pretty sure we always understand what happened and why it happens. And when we do that, we can get into a bad spot. They say, how have you loved us? And God's reply is interesting. He, he reminds them of an Old Testament story. He says, is not Esau Jacob's brother? But I loved Jacob, 
and I hated Esau. Now, if you're not familiar with this story, let me just give you a real quick uh, kind of flyover. God chooses Abraham, a man, through whom he wants Abraham to become a people so that he can bless the entire world. And so it becomes really important that Abraham has sons and that his sons have sons because the inheritance needs to pass, the promise needs to pass from father to son, from father to son, so that the promise can continue. And, and uh, Abraham has a hard time having a son, and he goes his own way, ends up having an illegitimate son named Ishmael, and then eventually he has a son, a son his name is Isaac, and Isaac is the son of promise, and he carries the covenant. And then Isaac has two sons, and they're twins, and these were, this is where we met es- meet Esau and Jacob. And whereas Ishmael was not a legitimate son of the promise, and Isaac was, Esau and Jacob are both legitimate, they're twins. Either one of them could have been the son of promise. And in this culture where primogeniture was the way they did things, that simply means the oldest son got the lion's share of the inheritance. So if you're the oldest, how many are your oldest children in your house? Oldest children. So you would get two-thirds of everything, especially the guys. You would get two-thirds of everything, right? So even in my house back then, even though my sister is older than me, older than me, even though my sister is older than me, I, because I'm the oldest male, I get all this stuff. So I just want to just, like, enjoy this moment for a second. This is... This is good, this is good. No, this is the way the culture was then. And so Esau is born, Esau is born just moments before Jacob. So according to culture, according to law, not law, but culture, Esau should have been the son of the promise. He should have, and we don't have time to go into the whole story because Jacob is a deceiver and he ends up stealing the blessing from Esau. But ultimately what we learn is, is that when we study the scriptures is that God, for whatever reason, he chose Jacob while they were still in the womb. Before, before Esau or Jacob was born, he chose Jacob. Now, what can you do to earn something while you're still in the womb? Was, was Jacob, you know, in, in there doing wonderful things? Was he smart? Was he impressive? No, you don't know anything. He didn't know anything. And this all points to the fact that God is saying to Israel, you are descendants of Jacob. Edom is, they're the descendants of Esau. And Edom, no matter what they do, I will stand against them. And because you're the sons of Jacob, no matter what you do, I will stand for you. And by the way, you didn't do anything to deserve this. How can you say, I don't love you when I chose you? And I sovereignly chose you. What we see here is he's saying to them, listen to this. This is the way one of the commentaries said it. My love for you is an electing love I've elected you in electing love because I chose you for myself above your brother Esau, even though Esau was older and even though Jacob was a deceiver. My love for you is unconditional love because I chose you before you had done anything good or evil, before you had met any conditions. While you were still in your mother's womb, I chose you. My love for you is sovereign because I I was under no constraint to love you. I was not forced or coerced. I was totally in charge when I set my love upon you. And my love for you is free because it's an overflow of my infinite grace that can never be bought. And what we see here is that because God's love for his people Israel was unmerited, it was also unchanging. Now, you and I aren't Israel, so what does this mean for us? When we go to the New Testament in John 15, 16, Jesus says this to his disciples, but also to us. You did not choose me. But I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. Just let that truth settle into your heart this morning. You may feel like you chose the path you're on spiritually right now. You may feel like I chose to be a Christian. And certainly, there is a response on the part of the individual. There's human responsibility. But Jesus is reminding us here, and Malachi is reminding us here, God chose you. You didn't choose him, God chose you. 
In fact, scriptures say later in the New Testament, even as he chose us, he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And so here are the Israelites forgetting that God has chosen them, forgetting that God loves them, and they're asking God, how have you loved us? Now, why does God love them? It says right in here that it says that he will be known beyond the borders of Israel. So remember, God didn't choose and elect Israel just to bless Israel for Israel's sake, did he? He chose and blessed Israel so that they might be a blessing to the nations. He didn't want his name just to be famous in Israel. God wanted his name to be famous everywhere, beyond the borders of Israel, in all nations, because God's desire is that his glory would cover the earth like the waters cover the seas. And that's where everything is headed. And so when God chooses us today to be his people, he doesn't just bless you for your own good, does he? He blesses you so that you can be a blessing to others. And what this simply means is that whatever God has done in you, he wants to do through you. Whatever he's done for you, he wants to see you help other people experience that. So if God has set you free from some sort of bondage and addiction, he wants to use your life to help other people walk free from that also. If God has brought you into a new place of peace out of anxiety, he wants to use you to help other people walk in peace. If God has given you the gift to understand scriptures and to teach scriptures, God wants to use you for that purpose. He wants to bless the nations through you. When we forget God's love, we lose our identity, who we are, but we also lose our mission, what we're here to do. And they have a forgetful heart. Now, let me pause and ask you this question. What do you do regularly to remind yourself of God's love? Because the world's not reminding us. Culture's not reminding us, right? Television, Netflix, it's not reminding you of God's love. It's reminding you of other things. But what do you do as a follower? If you're here this morning and you're a disciple of Jesus and you're following him, what do you regularly do so that you'll not forget, so that you won't have a forgetful heart? You might say, I come to church. Well, great, and we're glad that you're here. And I'm glad that church is part of your regular rhythms. I think it's very important. But you know, I was thinking about this the other day. There's 52 weeks in a year, right? So there's 52 Sundays in a year. I think on average, the average church attender at Trinity probably gets to about 40 Sundays uh, a year. People tend to miss one a month, or maybe you're serving in the nursery or something. You just miss a service, right? Or you're traveling on vacation. So let's just, plus 40 is easy for math. So let's just say 40 Sunday. Now, some people, it's much less than 40, honestly. Some, for different reasons. Some people, it's for work. And some people, it's just priorities. But for, let's say 40 Sundays a year, you're here, right? My average sermon is about 30 minutes. Might not feel that way all the time, but it is. It's about, it's about 30 minutes. So here's what it means. This occurred to me the other day. How much time do I have every year to remind you of God's love from the stage? 20 hours. Out of the entire year, I get to teach you for 20 hours. Not even a full day. Is that going to sustain you for 365 days? Is that, I mean, is it going to carry you? It isn't. It's not nearly enough. So what do we do? We establish rhythms in our lives so that we, as Martin Luther said, the most important spiritual habit you can do every day is to preach the gospel to yourself. Listen, every morning, I'm telling you, if you're anything like me, every morning you gotta remind yourself of God's love. Every morning, well, what are you doing? It doesn't happen on accident. So what's your plan? It could be as simple as, I'm gonna listen to worship music as I drive in my car to work. I'm gonna let the truth of those songs just steady my heart, strengthen me for the day. It could be I'm going to get up a little early and I'm going to spend some time in Scripture. It could be I'm going to get up early and I'm going to pray. I, I don't need to determine for you what your plan is, but you do need a plan. And it does need to be consistent. Otherwise, our hearts 
are so forgetful. You know what we need more than church? We need spiritual disciplines. We need spiritual conversations. And you need spiritual friends. Who in your life are you having spiritual conversations with regularly? God was convicting me of this because I got lots of friends in my life that I like to talk about lots of things about. And by lots of things, I mean mostly food and sports. Like that's like kind of like that's most of what my conversations revolve around. But every now and then, even though it feels a little awkward, doesn't it sometimes feel a little, maybe it's just me, feels a little awkward to say, so what's, uh, how, how are you doing with Jesus? I mean, it's a, it's a little weird. Maybe there's a better way to ask it. But, but uh, the, how do we initiate these spiritual conversations? And maybe it's just something we need to start making part of our lives and say, every month, I'm going to make sure I have coffee or lunch with some person. I'm going to make sure they know up front, hey, I'd love to get together with you and just talk about our faith and how we're doing and just kind of have a moment of honesty. Listen, we need that. That's why we, we, need, we need each other. We need community. Next week, we're going to see we were created for relationship. There's no way around it. Either we get healthy ones or we get unhealthy ones, but you don't get through life without relationship. We can't. So we need reminders. What are we doing to remind ourselves? And if we don't remember, we'll have a forgetful heart. Sounds bad, right? A forgetful heart. But listen, remember, this is still only the cause. The cause is a forgetful heart. What is the effect? And let's read the rest of this passage to see what the effect is. So if the cause is a forgetful heart, what's the effect? In verse 6, we're going to read about nine verses here. Verse 6, God continues to speak to Israel, and he says this. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest. Now he's calling out the leadership, the spiritual leaders of Israel. O priest who despise my name. But you say, remember this is a dispute, it's a debate back and forth. How have we despised your name? Give us evidence. Here's the evidence, verse seven. By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. And here's how they're doing it. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? They were instructed by the law that was given to Moses to bring the very best of their flock to God. The cream of the crop, perfect and pure, good stuff. And they're bringing blind animals to sacrifice. And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? God's saying, your, your political leaders wouldn't even accept this stuff. And you're bringing it to me? You're bringing it to God? Verse 9. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord. So they're offering these half-hearted wor- worship to God, and then they're expecting God to pour favor out on them. Verse 10. This is how bad it gets. Look at what God says. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. He's speaking about his kingdom. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. Look at verse 13. But you say, what a weariness this is. You're growing tired of worshiping me with your life. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among 
the nations. And here's what's happening. The Israelites, they have good flock. It says they have a male, which is what was required for the sacrifice, that's unblemished, that they vowed and promised, and said, God, I will give this to you. But instead, when, when the rubber hits the road, what are they actually bringing to him? The blind, the lame, the stuff that nobody wants, the stuff that's not as useful. So what we have here is the cause is a forgetful heart, but the effect is a weary heart. Their hearts have grown weary in worshiping God. There's no honor, there's no fear. They despise his name, they pollute his altar, and they despise the table. Now what does this mean to you and I? Because we don't enter physical temples anymore. We don't make actual sacrifices. What does this have to do with us? In Romans chapter 12, verse one, Paul gives us this helpful insight. He says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, listen to this phrase, he says, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Here's what Paul is saying. The sacrificial system is done. We don't use it, right? Right? We don't use it. You're never going to hear a ministry window on Sunday mornings about the sacrificial system. Here's here's where you drop your doves off, and here's where you bring your goats, right? We don't do that today here in our church, do we? So what do we do? Do we still make sacrifices? Yes, we do. What's a sacrifice? It's us. We're a live sacrifice. I've heard preachers say the problem with living sacrifices is what? They crawl off the altar. <laughs> they, 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 they go their own way. We're the living sacrifice. And Paul says, present yourself holy and acceptable, just like they used to determine what makes a holy and acceptable sacrifice to God. Present your sacrifice to God. This is your form of worship. This is worship. Sometimes we think, well, singing is worship. Yes, singing is a sliver of worship. But presenting your life to God Sacrifice, say, I'm here for your purposes and for your plans to be used by you. I surrender my desires and my wills and I lay down my life for you. That is our worship to God, to be the living sacrifice. And what's happening in the days of Malachi is they're bringing God essentially their leftovers and they're not giving, giving him the best. Now, I don't know how you feel about leftovers. In our home, we're very divided. I love leftovers. Anybody else with me love, love leftovers? And, and the reason I love leftovers, I think, is because I grew up in a home where my mom would make like a big pot of like uh, Korean chicken on Monday. And then she would put it in the fridge. And then for the rest of the week, we just would kind of like go to it and just get it as we needed. So I kind of was used to leftovers. It, wasn't, it didn't bother me. And I just felt like if it's in the fridge, it's good forever. Like, I mean, this, it's, this, there's no problem with this. Now, Erin, my wife, grew up in a family with 10 siblings. And when you grow up with 11 kids and, of course, your parents, uh, there's, no one even knows the word leftovers because it's not about leftovers. It's about, it's about surviving. And so... She grew up in a home where there was never leftovers. Everything was fully consumed and then some. And so when we got married and I was like, I was like, hey, let's just throw that in the fridge. I'll eat it later this week. She was like, she's kind of like, you can eat it, but I'm never going to eat that. I'm never touching that. She's like, I think maybe within 24 hours, she might go back in in some cases and have it. But once that 24 hours pass, she's not touching it. She will not, she will not have it. We, we have some disagreements in our house over leftovers. I don't mind them. She, she, she doesn't like them. God is saying here to the people, I don't want your leftovers. I don't want your leftovers. Don't bring me your second best. And what areas of our lives are we supposed to worship God? We often talk about the three T's, right? Time, talent, treasure. Time, how do we use our time to worship God? And this just doesn't mean how do you serve inside the walls of Trinity, but even in your workplace, in your neighborhoods, how do you use your time so that your life is a sacrifice to God? Time, talent, what gifts do you have? 
We need all the gifts that this body has. If you got a gift and we don't know about it, we need to know about it. And God has put you here in this church for a specific reason and given you a specific gift. And the body needs your gift. I genuinely believe that because God is sovereign. He brought you here. You have a gift. Let's learn about your gifts and let's figure out how can we bring those to God. And then our treasure, of course, which is our resources and our finances. And how do we worship God in those areas and not give God, hey God, I'm gonna live my life and then if there's a little bit left over of my time, talent, and treasure, this is yours. And this is what the people were doing. And Malachi says, no, you're doing this because you've forgotten that I love you. You've forgotten that I chose you. The cause is a forgetful heart, but the effect is a weary heart. And we expect God to respond to our leftovers, but he won't. Now, let me say this. This is, this is more than just giving leftovers because implicit in this is something else. They were, giving, they, they were giving their best to someone or something else. So it wasn't that they only had lame animals and blind animals. They had healthy, strong animals, but they were saving it for someone or something else. And this gives us a little insight into our own hearts. When we don't give God our worship, it doesn't mean that we stop worshiping altogether. It means that we're worshiping something else instead of him. G.K. Chesterton says it this way. He says, when we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing, we worship anything. When we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing, we worship anything. And so if we have weary hearts towards worshiping God, what it means is that our hearts are not so weary towards something else. There's something else that we love, that we adore, that we treasure, that we're giving our best to, and we're giving God our leftovers. And God here is confronting him on it. And did you notice how bad it got? He said, I wish you guys would just shut up and shop. Just stop with the offerings. Would just one of you have the backbone to say, we're not gonna play games anymore and just stop it? He says, I take no pleasure in you. And the rest of the book goes on and on like this. It's a real like, you know, really lifts your spirits to read Malachi. It just keeps going. It's worse. The men are leaving their wives for no reason. They're just divorcing them to chase after foreign wives and God calls them out on it. They're stingy with their resources. This is the famous passage where God says, will you rob me? Will you rob me? Uh, they're unfaithful to the covenant. And then it keeps escalating and escalating and getting worse. And then right as it escalates, it kind of culminates in Malachi chapter 3, verse 14, where the people of Israel say, it's a waste of our time to serve God. It's in vain that we serve him because he's not doing anything for us. And basically they say this, what is the profit of keeping his rules? What's in it for me? As soon as you say, what's in it for me, then you know you've not really been serving God at all. You've been serving yourself all along. And God has been a means to an end. You've served him because you thought you'd get something out of it. And now that life's not so great and you're not sure what's happening and you can't see what God is doing, all of a sudden you go, eh, I don't need this. This hasn't worked out for me the way I thought it was because you've forgotten. You've forgotten. You're Jacob and God chose you. He chose you because you're impressive, because you're good. No, he chose you before the foundations of the world, before you could do one thing right, before you could impress him, before you could prove yourself. God chose you, and he loves you, and he saved you. And when we forget that, then our hearts grow weary. And when the people say in Malachi 3, it's a waste of our time to serve God, God responds differently than ever before. Instead of having a dispute with them, God tells a story. And the story he tells in the end of Malachi chapter three is he tells a story about a remnant of people who are faithful to him. He says, there's a people who love me, who are faithful to me. And in the story, they come across this book. It's called the Book of Remembrance. And they open it up and they begin to read and they begin to remember who God is and what he's done. Let's read this in verse 16 as we close. Here's the story. 
Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Verse 17, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you will see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. And what God is saying here is at the end of time, it's going to be clear, those who are righteous, those who are unrighteous, those who belong to me, those who do not belong to me, and those who belong to me will be my treasured possession. Why? Because I chose them. Because I chose them. And what did God do to make you and me his most treasured possession? Did you notice he said, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Here's what God says. Someday, those who belong to me, I'm going to see them and I'm going to treat them as if they were perfect children, as if they were the obedient son that they should have been, and not, as we read in Malachi 1.6, the son who didn't honor his father. How can God say that? How can he say that one day he's going to look at you and me as if we're the child that kept all the rules, that was perfect? How can he do that? And the only way that he could do that is simply by treating the truly obedient son like us. Jesus was the perfect obedient son, the only obedient son. And God treated Jesus on the cross, the father treated Jesus on the cross like you and me, like, we, like, like he became our sin. And he took the punishment for our sin and our shame came upon him. And because of that moment, this is what it means, that every single one of us who places our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and not in ourselves, but in him, God sees you as if you're the son or the daughter who has always served him and served him perfectly. And that's the good news of the gospel. And then Malachi ends. And then it ends. He says, I'm going to send a man named, I'm going to send another Elijah. He prophesies at the very end of Malachi about John the Baptist. I'm going to send another Elijah who's going to prepare the day of the Lord. And he's going to turn the hearts of the children back to the Father. And then Malachi ends. And then 400 years of silence. And the next time a messenger shows up, it's the angel Gabriel saying, it's time. It's time. The perfect son who's going to take the punishment for all the sinful sons and daughters, it's his time. He's coming now. Let's ask God this morning, God, don't let me have a forgetful heart. Don't let me forget. You chose me. You saved me. You have a plan for my life. You have good things for me. And the best, listen, this is true, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. Someday in the new kingdom and the new earth, we're going to serve God the way we wish we always had. Perfect bodies, brilliant minds, clean spirits and souls. It's going to be you without pain, you without regret, you without anxiety, you without anger, you without whatever. You fill in the blank. You know what you have. You without that. And it's all before is because of what Jesus has done for us. So let us not forget, but let us daily not just remind ourselves, but hey, we're family. Can we commit to reminding each other? Let's remind each other. Let's cheer each other up. When somebody's having a bad day, let's reach out to them and let's remind them. Let's not, let's not just say, let's just not say things like, hey, don't worry, keep your head up. It's going to get better. That's not the gospel. Stop. That's not the gospel. Say, hey, God chose you and he loves you and he has a plan for your life and he's working things out for your good. Let's be that people who know how to speak that to each other. Truth, God's truth all the time. And as our hearts remember, our hearts will not grow weary, but we will endure to the end. 
and God will find a faithful remnant who will remember who he is, who will belong to him, and will be his treasured possession. Let's pray together this morning.